This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Venezuela's crisis continuing. A report by the Associated Press said the average wait time per month for people to get food right now in that country is about 35 hours. And right now, nine in 10 people say that they can't find enough food. Meanwhile, President Nicolas Maduro is refusing aid shipments, saying that they are not needed. Take a look at all aspects of this crisis right now. We're joined here in the studio by William Burke White, who is the director of the Perry World House. He's also a law professor here at the University of Pennsylvania. Joining us on the phone, Alejandro Velasco, who is associate professor of modern Latin America at New York University. Bill, great to see you again. Thanks Good for morning. coming in. Glad to be here. You got it. Alejandro, great to have you on the phone. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. Well, I, I mentioned at the top of the headlines, uh, the oil glut supposedly going to continue for at least another year. That certainly doesn't help this whole situation because oil is such an important factor, Bill, for, for Venezuela's economy. Yeah, oil is, of course, the major driver of Venezuela's economy, and oil production has continued to decline, uh, partly because, as you noted in the headline, uh, prices are down and that uh, you know, drops supply, but also simply because uh, of shortages in the equipment necessary to produce oil. Their economy has collapsed and their oil production capacity with it. Uh, that can rebuild, but it's only going to rebuild to the degree that there's demand to purchase that and the price point is high enough to justify the new investment that's going to be needed after the years of neglect. And Alejandro, it has been, I guess, historically uh, a massively large portion of the Venezuelan economy that you tied directly to, to the oil industry in years past. Yeah, absolutely. And it's been that way, as you said, for 100 years and more. Um, one of the interesting uh, elements of this particular moment is that that dependency has only increased exponentially. It's now up to about 95 percent of GDP. The notes that I saw about President Maduro uh, denying the aid or, or some aid from other countries, that's a, uh, kind of a staggering move uh, to me. Where do you stand on that? Well, it's a little bit complicated. I mean, on the one hand, you can't blame Maduro for rejecting that, at least on the basis of um, his domestic um, credibility, right? I mean, to suggest that there is a humanitarian crisis would be to admit complete failure in every um, sort of capacity that he would have as commander of you know, Venezuela's uh, economy. So you can't well do that. On the other hand, you're absolutely right. The crisis is severe, especially in medicine um, and also in food. You know, if we were having this conversation a few years ago, Venezuela would be thought of as a, you know, developed, uh, largely Western economy, uh, a place where people uh, live, you know, essentially normal lives. Uh, and what you know, that means, this is not like a country that has spent its last 20 years in famine and economic hardship accepting aid. So uh, it would just be a radical transformation for how Venezuela understands itself. It's urgently necessary, but it's yeah. something that the political elite there is not willing to accept. Uh, precisely as we just heard, because it would undermine their credibility fundamentally. So then, Alejandro, from the outside looking in, what do uh, uh, entities like the U.N. or countries like the United States try and do right now to, to try and alleviate some of this problem without infringing on the, uh, on, on the territory uh, of President Maduro? Well, the U.S. would do absolutely nothing. I mean, anything that the U.S. does plays domestically to uh, a narrative of intervention um, that plays... Well, even now, um, even though that has been losing appeal over the last couple of years as the crisis has deepened, 
Um, I mean, the U.S. can do other things, and it has been doing that. It has been putting pressure on government officials through lawsuits um, and other kinds of, um, uh, you know, measures that, that target uh, the, uh, the upper echelons of the government. It can also do other things in terms of alleviation, like, for instance, increasing the quota of um, visas that it grants um, to people seeking, uh, you know, asylum or, or residency in the United States. Um, and that's something that it hasn't done up to this point. 844-WHARTON is the number if you'd like to join in the conversation. 844-942-7866. We're joined in studio by William Burke-White uh, of the uh, of Penn Law and also the Perry Worldhouse, Alejandro Velasco of New York University, joining us on the phone right now. 844-942-7866. In your opinion, Alejandro, then, is there a great fix to this right now? I'm sorry, is there a great what? Great fix. Oh, uh, look, so... I think so. Um, I mean, one of the really remarkable features of what's happening now is that there are actually some very concrete measures that the government could actually easily take um, that it has been resisting for reasons that I can't explain and and others can't explain. Um, And one of them, for instance, would be to fix the tremendously skewed exchange rate that it's maintained for now upwards of more than 10 years and has only aggravated the, the fiscal crisis in Venezuela. Um, and insofar as there's this tremendous gap between the official exchange rate and the black market exchange rate, that just creates more and more incentives for corruption um, and, and shortages, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, you know, that is one quick fix. Um, but, the, you know, the bigger fixes have to do with rearranging the dependency on oil. And that is something that neither the government nor the opposition really has any response to. Yeah, so I think there's a, a couple of fixes. There's a short-term fix, which is that they do need aid and assistance. And as we've said, they're not going to take it. But this past weekend, uh, Venezuela hosted the Summit of the Non-Aligned Movement. This is a collection of countries, uh, none of whom are on anybody's sort of best uh, best country list. It's places like Zimbabwe, Somalia, North Korea, the Democratic yeah. Republic of Congo. Uh, and Venezuela invested a lot in this summit. Um, I think there's you know different kinds of partnerships that could be framed not as aid necessarily, right. uh, with governments that aren't the United States or Western Europe that might be able to bring at least some, uh, you know, temporary relief or temporary economic investment. And I do wonder if Maduro had some conversations around that at the sidelines of the summit. Uh, I think the longer term fix, though, is political change. Um, I agree completely with Alejandra that you need to reduce dependency on oil. But guess what? That means moving to other economic sectors, which either means new workers have to come in or tourists have to come in. And that's not going to happen until you have a new government. Uh, Maduro is trying to resist that. There's a, a strong protest movement calling for a recall election, um, you know, that's got to happen. Yeah. Uh, and there's got to be a political house cleaning uh, so that you can sort of reset the political and economic um, clock here. To be able to build up other business elements within a country, that's not an overnight fix. That's something that, that will take several years to be able to build it up to the point where you can be considered a leader in an area to be able to have a financial benefit to it. I mean, there's so much investment that has to happen first before you get you see that turnaround. Yeah, and you know, tourism was actually a big driver of the Venezuelan economy before this. That's going to take a long time to come back till people feel safe again in a yeah. country with the second or third highest murder rate in the world at the moment. Uh, the other challenge they have is that the major source of investment has been China. China's made $60 billion in loans to Venezuela over about the past decade. 
decade. Uh, and China's retrenching. They're saying uh, there's too much outstanding debt that's not getting paid back. They're yeah. saying their workers are uh, in, in jeopardy when they're in the country. Uh, and so China, as the economic partner, uh, and particularly the natural resource procurer, uh, is, is stagnating in Venezuela. And that's going to make recovery economically all the harder. How much, Alejandro, is this starting to become like what has happened the last few years in Brazil? Oh, I mean, it's eons away from what's happened in Brazil, yeah. as far as the you know the political stalemate has been going on now in Venezuela for upwards of ten years plus. Um, I think that what has changed dramatically is the position of the the standing of the government domestically, which has been so weakened. Um, by Maduro's inefficiency and, and, and just a general lack of competence on the part of the government. Um, and, and I think the other factor that, that comes into play, which is what you just heard from your other guest, is um, that the opposition has a real um, opportunity at this moment. It's, it's far stronger than it's ever been. It's far more united than it's ever been. That has also changed kind of the, the structure of, of the political game at this point. Um, and so in that sense, certainly there's, uh, you know, the the, the landscape is different, but um, but in terms of you know what happened in Brazil with a kind of impeachment process, that's just not in the cards. What we have more in Venezuela at this moment is a, a sort of uh, you know an institutional crisis where you have the National Assembly saying it doesn't recognize any of the other branches, um, and that's that's controlled by the opposition, and of course all the other branches which are controlled by the government says it doesn't recognize the National Assembly. So, you yeah. know, there's a severe institutional crisis. Uh, and we mentioned, uh, go, go ahead, Bill. No, I was going to say, you know, Alejandro, I agree with you that, that they're very different, but there's a couple of similarities or parallels that I think are just worth illuminating between Brazil and Venezuela. Um, one is uh, what happens when you have corruption and incompetent governance, um, ta you know, coupled particularly with declining oil prices. And those declining oil prices have hit both countries hard. Um, and then you add the layers of corruption and political infighting, in both countries you've sort of had government that has stalemated. The difference, really, I would argue, is that Brazil has a much stronger democracy, a stronger institutional framework uh, that isn't perfect. There's huge problems with how the impeachment happened and where Brazil is heading, uh, whereas Venezuela just doesn't have the resilience of those institutions to withstand the kind of political turmoil, uh, and that has made things, you know, as, as Alejandro said, a hundred times worse. 844-942-7866. You can uh, join in the conversation, or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, either at BizRadio111 or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. We're talking about the problems in Venezuela. Uh, you have uh, several issues that, that have to be taken care of. In terms of, of what we may see with... Uh, coming up in the next few days with uh, with uh, this uh, this summit and and this uh, meeting to come together, Alejandro. I mean, it's it's seemingly something that that the government would like to be able to squash as much as, as possible. Correct. Well, yeah. But, I mean, I think I think that this is basically just spectacle. It's, it's sort of it's gamemanship and showmanship. It's, it's sort of trying to say that look, people, especially in the U.S. and Western media, have been saying that Venezuela is increasingly isolated and. And we're not. Um, I mean, it's hard to imagine um, rebutting that narrative of what you're bringing to the country is, you know, Zimbabwe, North Korea, Iran, and other like nations, right? So, um, I think that it's 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 meant to play domestically. Um, but again, the government is in such a weakened position, um, even from its own supporters. Uh, I mean, it's not just people who have historically aligned with the opposition. It's people who have historically been, um, you know, pro-government, that they have just had it with, especially Maluto. The real question is, as um, as I was saying before, you know, will there, will there be enough political capital on the part of the opposition to push for a recall referendum this year or next year? That's, that's what's at stake. 
And I'll point out, too, that whether it's this year or next year matters a great deal. If it's yeah. this year, as in before January 1st, 2017, um, that means that there would actually be a new government put into place. If right. it's next year, Maduro's party gets to continue in power. He may get removed, but the party stays in power um, through the natural election cycle. And so part of what may be going on here is uh, even if, if he himself is detached from this, uh, his supporters, his party, trying to push the crisis out past the January one deadline so that they sure, remain yeah. in power till 2019, uh, whereas the opposition is trying to build enough political momentum in the next three months to force the recall election sooner. What do you what do you put as the, the, the chances that we would see a recall election here in the next couple of months, Bill? Uh, you know, I wish I thought it was higher than than it is. My guess is uh, I'd have to say it's it's less than, you know, around 30, 40 percent. I think it's much more likely that it happens next year. This is a government that for, uh, you know, two big political cycles, Chavez and now Maduro, has managed to stay in power. Um, and they seem to be not solving the crisis, but sort of riding it through, uh, you know, the next several months. Alejandro? I think it's far more likely that Maduro resigns and there would be a referendum, and that has to do with a lot of, um, sort of inside baseball, as it were, in terms of negotiations, informal negotiations between the government and the opposition. I mean, the way that I like to explain it is imagine being the opposition and having to deal with this crisis now, right? Yeah. Um, so the opposition is in a, in a, is in a difficult place. I mean, it, it has political momentum for sure, certainly. But it, that political momentum comes now with increasing responsibility as to well, what would we do if we actually were in power, right? So there, my sense is that, and just thinking about um, you know conversations that have been happening between the government and the opposition, that there is more willingness for a kind of negotiated solution that looks kind of like either Maduro resigning um, or a referendum in 2017 that brings different sectors of the government to, into play that can negotiate with the opposition and certain, certain sectors of the opposition. Right. So um, my sense is that either the referendum will happen in 2017 with some kind of informal negotiation or um, Maduro resigns as sort of a, uh, you know, sort of a scapegoat um, that then allows other sectors in the government to rise up. I mean, does that seem like that that's a possibility, a a significant possibility that you would see Maduro resign? Because usually when you have these people that that are in power, I mean, we we certainly saw it in Brazil. It's the last thing they want to do. They don't want to give up the last, you know, the reins of the ship for for any way, shape or form. You know, well, there's many other. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Alejandro. There's thank you. There's many other, you know, Chavismo is a very fragmented force, although it looks hyper-united. certainly was under, under, under Chavez. Right. But in part, it was united under Chavez because Chavez is such an omnipotent presence in, in the movement and such a personalist figure. Um, and so what Maduro doesn't have is that kind of command over all the various factions of Chavismo. So there are certainly factions within Chavismo that would see themselves benefiting from having Maduro out of power. Um, now, why? That's the real question. Some would benefit because, um, you know, they feel like this would be an opportunity for them to gain more control. Some would benefit because they feel like they really need to negotiate with some sectors of the opposition. But Maduro does not have the kind of command that would really allow him to you know, bring together all these various factions. 
Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, no president likes to resign, but um, uh, eventually, if you see the cards uh, on the table, sometimes that is actually the politically more expedient move. And we even saw that here in the United States when Richard Nixon chose to resign in, in facing impeachment. So I think it's not crazy that he would resign. And I think the point that he's really the second generation, but not the commanding figure of the political movement, uh, makes it easier because he is not so closely attached to the ideology as, say, Chavez was. Um, so it's certainly not a out of the question. Uh, I totally agree with Alejandro, though, that you really wouldn't want to come into power in Venezuela right now. And there I want to draw <laughs> the contrast with Brazil. Uh, right now, I think Brazil is, you know, there's a lot of political infighting. It's far from clear that Michael Temer is going to be a great president. But I think the general trajectory of the country is at least stable. Um, yeah. In Venezuela, you've got to rebuild public institutions. You've got to get food on the table. You've got to rebuild the oil industry. You've got to get um, the, the police force to work. Um, yeah. These are things that are hard to do. They're expensive. And whoever comes into power next is going to get blamed for the same problems that the current government's being blamed for. So I think there could be a reluctance of anyone to really want to yeah. take that challenge on uh, unless there's a clear political mandate and a sort of clear path forward that doesn't exist right now. Well, and at least in Brazil, they've they've done, uh, you know, partly a decent job in terms of rebuilding infrastructure over the last few years because of hosting the World Cup and hosting the Olympics. So you've had to do this because of those events going on. Yeah. And, and there's it's just the country's in a very different economic position despite its challenges, um, you know, Venezuela is uh, a, a failing state at the moment um, without the resources to really rebuild it. And that's because of, you know, bad government and bad management for, for the last 10 years. Uh, but where those resources are going to come from and where the political will is going to come from is unclear, even if uh, Maduro is forced from power or resigns. What about the neighboring countries around Venezuela, Alejandro? What role uh, can they and should they take uh, at this point? I mean, I think the biggest player right now is Colombia, which has long been Venezuela's you know, um, largest trade partner. Um, and for um, upwards of a year, the border was closed between Colombia and Venezuela, and that was a move that um, Maduro took before the crisis really hit severe levels um, to supposedly you know, control smuggling that in part results from the, the, exchange, uh, the exchange currency policy that creates incentives for smuggling um, products bought cheaply in Venezuela and then sold highly in in, the, in, in Colombia, um, but that that order was lifted, and we're seeing now sort of a free flow of people from Venezuela to Colombia to buy food and medicine, and you're seeing that in the tens of thousands, people just flocking and coming back. Um, and so, you know, in that sense, Colombia, for instance, has that role to play as a as an escape valve, as it were, to some of the, to meet some of the needs from from Venezuelans. You know, Brazil's role is slightly different. I mean, as as you just heard, it's 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 standing regionally has has weakened considerably. Um, but what you see also in the change of government is also very um, significant pressure now on the part of the Temer government against Venezuela, which is a traumatic, uh, you know, change of, of of tune from when it was under the Lula and Dilma years when you know the alliance was very strong, right? So I think you're seeing diplomatic pressure from countries like Argentina and Brazil. Um, and then you're seeing different kinds of more, um, you know, different kinds of assistance, uh, uh, even if it's circuitous from places like Colombia. But you're not seeing people leave and stay, uh, you know, and move to places like Colombia at this point. They're just going there to, you know, to be able to get resources and come back to Venezuela, correct? Well, in the short term, that's true, um, although you have seen a tremendous outward flow 
um, over the last uh, you know ten years. Someone, you know, the last figure that I read is one and a half million people have left Venezuela. Uh, these, of course, have been mostly middle class, you know, professionals and the rest of it seeking you know to rebuild their lives elsewhere. Um, the real question is going to be if you have something resembling like a refugee crisis, where it's you know working class and poor sectors who are really finding it extremely hard to live to get by. If those people start to flock to places like Colombia, then I think you have this you know, quantitative shift that you've never seen before in Venezuela. 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. 844-942-7866 if you'd like to join in the conversation. Joining me here in the studio, William Burke White, director of the Perry World House, also law professor here at the University of Pennsylvania. Also with us, Alejandro Velasco, who's an associate professor of modern Latin America at New York University. Again, 844-942-7866 is the number to give us a call. A couple minutes before we let you both go, quickly about Brazil and the status that that country is in. It was everything seemingly went pretty well through the Olympics, but where are they standing right now? You, you know, I mean, we're yeah. kind of back into the mix now that all the fanfare has kind of died down. Yeah, you know, what was it? Uh, two months ago, we had a conversation of would Brazil, you know, withstand the Olympics? And they did. It wasn't yeah. perfect. Um, they got through it. Uh, and then, of course, they managed to impeach their president within, uh, you know, weeks of, of the Olympics. Um, I think the question for Brazil now is, first of all, uh, can they really clean up corruption? They actually just threw out of Congress um, Cunha, who is the person who really uh, championed the impeachment of 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 Dilma, uh, because he too took $40 million in bribes. And this is a story where everybody lives in a glass house and is throwing stones. But can they clean up the corruption? Secondly, can Temer, who doesn't really have a mandate here, um, can he develop a economic reform program that moves Brazil forward? And third, can Brazil get new confidence from in the global economy to bring right resources back mm-hmm. in? Uh, but they're poised, you know, posed in a direction that I think that's possible. Uh, it's not obvious that it's going to happen, but compared to Venezuela, they're on a much better trajectory. Um, but Temer really has to prove that he can lead, that he can yeah. build a coalition, uh, and that he can attract in- inward investment. Alejandro, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to say. Um, I think that the, the issue in Brazil is, is primarily, as you just heard, um, a question about institutional confidence building and the, to the extent that, you know, just as Venezuela is dependent, this might be an outrageous statement, but just as Venezuela is so dependent on, on oil, um, Venice, uh, Brazil's political institutions are to a large extent dependent on corruption. I mean, the Mensalau is just a scandal that's been going on for, for you know for, for years, really. And and partly what this what's so significant about this moment is that it's getting at the core of how politics happen in Brazil. And so what's really been you know the, the big change isn't just an institutional change; it's a cultural shift. Um, and, you know, to the extent that that can happen with Demet, who is extremely weak, um, and an economy that is sort of rebuilding, that's, you know, that's, that's anybody's guess at this point. Great to have you both on the show today. Thank you very much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. Always a pleasure. Thanks, Thanks Dan. Bill. You got it. Alejandro, great Thank to have you, you on the phone. Sure. Thank you very much. Thank you. Uh, William Burke White, uh, director of the Perry World House, uh, law professor here at the University of Pennsylvania. Alejandro Velasco, associate professor of modern Latin America at uh, New York University. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.